Sunday, September the 24th. Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Okay, new series. Living out of the depths. There's a world of difference between living out of the depths and living out of the shallows. We have become increasingly aware in our image-driven world of things that are superficial, shallow, things that are built around pretense. We're suspicious of smoke and mirrors. We're suspicious of external actions where there lacks the almost intangible evidence that something deeper is going on. We've become aware that there is often so much more than just the physical immediate that we see and we're hungry for something deeper, something more authentic, something that is real. Sometimes the same actions can have a hugely different result. You will have all seen, for example, uh, a GP. Let's take them as an example. It could be any profession or anything. And the same interaction might take place in terms of listening, responding, and giving you the same uh, prescription diagnosis response. The facts might be the same, but the impact it has on you can be considerably different depending on who it was and what they carried. And it's those things that are, that are hard sometimes to, to, to assess. They're, they're even deeper than what we might call soft skills. Some people that care for you make you feel really cared for. Other people that do the same thing in terms of outward external action, they do not have that same impact on you. Do you know what I'm talking about? There is an, a, a perceptible difference. The reason might be imperceptible, but there is a perceptible difference between moments when people interact with us out of the shallows and when they interact with us from the depths. When someone brings a depth of themselves, a depth of love, a depth of authenticity, a depth ultimately of the presence of God, somehow their heart is more richer, deeper, fuller, and it touches us and it changes us. Can you think of people like that? What impact do they have on you? Can you think of people like that? What impact do they have on you? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and either say, I've got no idea what he's talking about, or maybe he's digging at something that is true. Go.
you can meet people again and again and again and nothing much changes. You can meet someone once and everything changes. Can you think of an encounter when you met someone once or a few times and in that context, everything changed? Or think about it the other way. Maybe we're longing to have an impact. We're longing to see a change. And and we keep at it as if by our own kind of stirring and striving and effort will bring about that uh, change. And we find ourselves more and more splashing about in the shallows. And the only thing you can do in the shallows is to try and make a bigger splash. And that's just annoying. We long to impact out of the deeper place. Now, until a few days ago, I was calling this series something different. The basic idea is that there is a calling on all of our lives. And what I wanted to do was to undermine, in a good way, hopefully, some of the presuppositions we make about that calling on our lives. Because as soon as I say there's a calling on our lives, something inside you says, well, what is it? Or where is that supposed to be? Like, is it a calling to do that job or this? Is it a calling to that activity or the other? And we get focused on the what. As if our calling is defined by what we do or even how we do it. And I think there's something much deeper at work that we see through the Scriptures. Uh, And it's not about what am I to do, or how am I to do it, or where do I do it, although all those things are important. And I think we get stuck there because we're trying to figure out answers to those questions. Uh, And I think we get stuck there because we don't get the clarity on those answers that we're looking for. We get disgruntled because it feels like it's eluding us or disappointing or even despairing. Because those are secondary questions. The primary question, I think, is not what and where and how and all that stuff. Calling is not what you do or where you do it, but it's who you are. It's who you are. If we were to become fully who we are in God's purpose, it probably wouldn't matter where we were, we would be living out our calling. You with me? You imagine if you became who you are with your family or in your workplace, or your neighborhood, or wherever it might be. It's not so much about the what, or even the how, although who you are directly changes the what and the how. It's not about the where, but it is about the who. The who you are. Was Jesus any more called when he was in the carpenter shop, or on the road to Jericho? Was Jesus any more 
called when he was an 11-year-old child playing or the 12-year-old we meet in the temple. Of course, he was called the whole time because it was about who he was and not limited or defined by what he did. I had a Kairos moment a few weeks ago. And like most Kairos moments, you know those ha-ha moments when suddenly you see something that's kind of perhaps you haven't seen before. And Kairos moments are typical. You see something that you hadn't seen before that's so blatantly obvious you can't understand why you've never seen it before. You know, something that's just so obvious, it's just there, isn't it, you know? And uh, as part of some of the leadership stuff we do, I was looking at this leadership exercise that perhaps some have used in business or in other places called the pre-mortem. And it sounds as exciting as it, uh, it is as exciting as it sounds. Most of the time we do a post-mortem, don't we? We analyze why something died, why something went wrong, why something lost its way. Looking back. But what if we anticipate the possibility of something failing? Now, when we vision cast and we strategize, we're always anticipating, quite rightly so, something succeeding. So you need to do all of that stuff. But another way of looking at the scenario that you're faced with that opens up a different vista of understanding is to think about what happens if something that you're planning fails. Why did it fail? So imagine something, this church, your business, a relationship that you've got, your children, your parents, whatever, and imagine in a few years' time, it's failed in some way. It hasn't mapped out the way that you wanted to. It's gone wrong. It hasn't hit the target for some reason. Why did that happen? So think about it for this church for a minute. In five years' time, for some reason, it's all gone wrong. Why did that happen? Discuss. Off you go. So we're projecting into the future and we're thinking about for some reason we haven't stepped into the utopia for which we were dreaming. We haven't seen God do the things that we longed for him to do. We haven't in some way seen ourselves moving into the fullness of what he has for us. Why? This was the Kairos moment that in some ways is just so obvious it's kind of embarrassing. And and we will instinctively think about structural things. We might think, well, we ran out of money. Uh, we all had a big fight. Uh, I started preaching heresy. Uh, what else were you thinking in your cataclysmic vision of the future? Sorry? Sorry? 
The fight, what, in the buildings? Yeah, we lost the buildings, the pillars fell down. I turned into Samson and I pulled the pillars just to see what would happen. And it all came crashing down and we, and we thought, this is a, all we're left with rubble. Actually, the one thing that came with a sharp level of clarity is that we were not learning to deal with our inner worlds. That's it. That's it. We, all of us, me, you, everyone, we were not learning to deal with our inner worlds. What does it mean to deal with our inner worlds so that we learn to live out of the depths, to know God in the deeper place, to be known by God in the deeper place, and therefore to show up with the deeper parts of who we are. We're going to look at the life of Moses over these weeks. Why Moses? Well, I think because Moses, if you think about it, comes at the end of a progression where the first couple of books of the Bible are establishing things that are really important for us. So there are two big characters in the book of Genesis, aren't they? Who are they? Abraham's the first one. What does Abraham's life teach us? What's the big story of Abraham's life? God is, God is a personal, is that what we said? Yeah, relationship, absolutely. Uh, utterly, unbelievably mind-blowing in the world in which it was written. The Bible is saying that God invites us into relationship with him. That without a relationship with him, it's utterly meaningless and pointless. It doesn't matter what your religion is, what your ritual is. doesn't matter whether you go there or do this or do that. The whole thing is about a relationship with God that he invites us into. He takes the, God takes the initiative and invites us in. And we can talk about covenant and the way that in normal life, two parties came together and they both brought something into the covenant. But when God makes this deal with Abraham, God brings everything because Abraham Abraham's got nothing to offer. You and I got nothing to offer, but God invites us into relationship. That's the big story of Abraham. Next big character in the Bible is Joseph. What does the story of Joseph tell us? Hmm, there's a thought. Sorry? He did keep on keeping on. He was faithful. What was the result? Okay, that God's plan would succeed, that Joseph became the point person of what God wanted to do in the world. So you've got these two massive stories that dominate the first book of the Bible that says what God's seeking is that people will be in relationship with him and then they will engage with the world around them. Covenant, kingdom, being with him and taking in relationship with him and taking responsibility for him. Not surprisingly then, when we get to the next big character in the Bible whose name is Moses, you can all read that brilliantly, uh, superb. 
those two things come together in an amazing way. Because if you think about what Moses, this great leader in the Old Testament, an archetypal leader, influencer, who saw the people of Israel rescued from slavery, it became the iconic story that still exists today about being released out of slavery into freedom. Moses, the pivotal point person in that, what was his leadership strategy? You could say exactly he didn't have one. So what did he have if he didn't have a strategy? He had a very simple rhythm. I'm going to encounter God, and then I'm going to take that encounter, and I'm going to engage with the world. I'm going to encounter God, and I'm going to engage in the world. And notice that he didn't engage, well, he did engage in the world, didn't he? You know the story, maybe. Um, We'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time, probably. Uh, And he he was a bit of a naughty lad, and he killed someone just because he got a bit crossed. Uh, So his engagement was all up the spout until he learned to encounter and then engage in that order. Encounter and engage. And so he becomes the archetypal rhythm, pattern for living. What did Jesus do? Think about Jesus' life for a minute. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, encounter, down the mountain, engagement. No surprise there. It's almost as if when the writer was writing the story about Moses, he already knew about Jesus, unless it was the same writer writing the whole book. Now there's a thought. So it all links together. That's the rhythm. Encounter and engagement. Now the thing about encounter is that you can only encounter God to the level, to the depth with which you're prepared to go. You cannot bring to God levels of your own self that you're not even aware of yourself. So where we keep a lid on ourselves, where we keep ourselves locked up, where we only live out of the shallows, we will only give God the shallows. Does that make sense? Because that's all we've got. And sometimes that helps me. Sometimes when I'm in a pickle and I reach out to someone or I share something to someone and they kind of don't really respond very much, I think, well, maybe, maybe that's just all they've got. They're living in the shallows and that, that's all they've got. What does it mean to live out of the depths? So why Moses? Because he exhibits this archetypal pattern of encounter and engagement And as we look at the life of Moses, there are a few things that we need to remember. We need to remember uh, what we see in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 2 that Elizabeth read to us. Now, a man on the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Sorry, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. So a man married a woman and they had a kid. You can't get more ordinary than that. How many kids will be born today? A lot. The UN estimates about 385,000 will be born today, people. So it's quite a a normal thing happening in normal life. This story begins as ordinary as you can get a story because there isn't anyone here who didn't begin like this. Whatever other circumstances there are, a man meets a woman and has a child and that child was you or me. 
Uh, and so what, what, are we, what are we led to understand before we get into anything about the story is that there is something incredibly ordinary going on here. And so it's not that I can't relate to Moses and his beginning as if he's some kind of superhero. No, Moses isn't a superhero. Moses isn't one of the special people and all the rest of us are ordinary. Or is he? Question mark. He, he's just an ordinary guy from an ordinary family. In fact, uh, a very ordinary Levite man, Levite woman as a kid. No big deal. That happens every day. This is just ordinary stuff, just like you and me. Very ordinary. And in fact, Hebrews reminds us of this. In the Hebrews chapter 11, when it goes through the, the people of faith, and it says right at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, basically, uh, that they're all just like us. So in other words, when you look at those heroes of faith, do not say, those are great heroes of faith, that's got nothing to do with me. What you can say is those may be heroes of faith because we're all invited to be heroes of faith. You with me? We're all invited to step into that posture. And I love the way Hebrews chapter 11 does that. It kind of zeroes in. It's a lovely kind of literary effect of kind of concentrating kind of big chunks on one person and then big chunks on another person. And then it speeds up and goes, I've got no time to tell you about them, 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 and those type of people and those type of people. There was just loads of people. So don't think it's kind of special and unique. This is an invitation for the ordinary person, just like you and me. But then notice what gets said uh, just after that. Uh, where are we? She saw there was something special about him. So maybe Moses wasn't ordinary after all. Maybe he was extraordinary in some way. She saw that he was, in the NIV, it says a fine child. It's a bit of a strange translation. Uh, a special child. She saw something that, that, that was extraordinary, if you like, about him. Now, now what, are, what are we led to understand? Is Moses, so is Moses ordinary like us or is he extraordinary? In which case, suddenly there's a complete disconnect between his story and ours. You see, because if Moses is extraordinary and I'm ordinary, then his story is meaningless to me. Do you understand? Because I can't relate to that. He's, he's, he's in a different class. He's in a different breed. So what does it mean? Well, we might say, well, of course Moses was extraordinary. Have you read the story? The plagues, the staff, the crossing of the Red Sea, all those miracles, the wandering through the wilderness, the, the leader that is still talked about 3,000 or so years later. Of course, of course he's extraordinary. No. No, he, he's extraordinary, not in that way, but he's extraordinary like you are extraordinary. This is a mother looking at a child and saying about my child, wow, she's special. He's special. Because we all think that about our kids, don't we? In that moment. Because suddenly in that moment, we get a window into the extraordinariness of what it is to be in relationship with a child, a parent, 
to see the miracle of what life is. We're all extraordinary in that sense. I mean, Ottilie, for example, who's our granddaughter, I mean, she's the most intelligent five-month-year-old girl in the whole of the world. She's more beautiful than any girl has ever looked. The rest of you are just pale and insignificant in the light of her beauty. Now, clearly, that's a perspective, but it illuminates a truth, doesn't it? Because David would say later on, he said, what you've got to realize is that all of us carry that extraordinariness. Because all of us are what? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. All of us. And so when, Mose, um, when Moses' mom looks at her child and expresses something about that extraordinariness, We don't want to diminish that, but we want to elevate it and say, of course that's the truth, because that's the reality for all of our lives. But I love what David says, that it's easy to miss. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What does it say? I know that full well. I don't think we do. I don't think we do. I think there's an invitation here for us to begin to explore the fearfully and wonderfulness of who we all are. And the trouble is that sense of fearfulness and wonderfulness gets lost because we've got disappointed, we've got hurt, we felt rejected, we felt abandoned, we felt like that hasn't worked out right and life has squeezed us and crushed us and pressed us in and we're all a bit kind of, ugh. And we've lost sight of the extraordinariness of who we are. Imagine if we could recover what it was. To live out of that beauty, to live out of that wonder, to live out of that rich, deep place where God wants to find us and where we want to find God. That's the journey that Moses invites us into. Because as he encountered God, and we'll see this over the weeks, as he encountered God, something began to change in his death. And where he begins in his early life to react out of the shallows and his reactions are wrong and cause him grief and cause him trouble, as he begins to encounter God, particularly in the quiet place, in the place of solitude, in the place of vulnerability, something begins to change within him. And of course, we know to be true, it's only as the deeper we go down, the taller that we can rise. Just like a tree depth of the tree and the roots is proportional to the height that it can grow. The power of an iceberg is not in what you can see, it's in what you can't see. And so as Moses spent the first part of his life learning what it was to live out of the depths, so after that encounter, he was able to engage in a new kind of way. So that's the journey that we're on. What I'd love us to do is to think about 
uh, I'm coming to an end now, to think about how we respond all the time and engage with this uh, particular uh, journey. What we're encouraged in the scriptures to do is to love God, to encounter God with all of our being. And uh, uh, the Jews had words for that. We have words for that. They're not always quite the same uh, words. But essentially, we need to engage with God with our mind. And, and that's been our natural space, hasn't it? If we think about it, this environment causes us, if we're not careful, to focus, to overfocus on what we're thinking. But it's not just our mind, because we know that what we will say, the discipleship questions, is what is God saying? I.e., what am I thinking about it? And then what's the next question? What am I going to do about it? So that we know we need to engage God with our strength. Yeah? But there's more. Uh, and we've been thinking about that with the divided heart stuff, because what, what Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Some of those terms are it kind of interchangeable, but the other bit that we might say is, what does it mean to love God with our soul? Yeah. So this might be about how we think, this might be about what we do, and this might be about what we feel. If we really want to begin to live out of the depths, those three things have to come together. For as long as they remain separated, the Bible calls it the what kind of heart? The divided heart. It's not joined up. And it's fighting each other. And you can fight that for a while, but in the end you'll give up because it's just exhausting. So you can't continually think and behave in a way that is against how you feel. In the end, your feelings will spill out. And if you feel a certain way, it will, in, in the end, lead to the way that you act. The sweet spot for all of this is when these three come together. That's what we're looking for. So, so each time when we engage with the Scriptures... I want to encourage you to think about these three questions. What does it make me think? How does it make me feel? Uh, And what do I know I should do? Because if you concentrate on just one of those, this is how I think, in the end it'll disappear away. If you concentrate on doing something without engaging your mind and your feelings, you might do that for a short while, but in the end you'll just run aground with effort and exhaustion. And if you don't address the way that you feel, if you don't give that space to breathe and allow God to touch you there as much as to change your feelings, as much as your thinking and your actions, then you're undermining the whole process all of the time. So think about that just for a moment. Today, having listened to Moses, ordinary, extraordinary, living out of the depths rather than the shallows, this morning, what do you think? And how do you feel? And they could be opposing each other right now. That wouldn't be unusual. But that might be our reality, and we need to own it. And as a result, what will I do? Let's be quiet for a moment.
Let's uh, use the words of this song that, uh, that we'll sing, Waiting Here for You. It's a recognition of our dependence. It's a recognition that to live out of the depths, we need to encounter God first.